Dear Father, we give you all the praise, all the thanks, all the glory that you richly deserve for what you have done in building up this body from, from nothing to what we have here tonight, Father. By the measure of men, it probably doesn't amount to much in most eyes, but Father, seeing it with spiritual eyes, we are amazed. We are amazed at who you have gathered and how much love for you is in this room, how much desire for your word and to live according to it has already been shown among those who've gathered, Father, and, and for the opportunities that you've given each of us to minister to one another and to others in just a, a short time, Father, four months. We're thankful for that. We're excited by what you've done. We're looking forward to where you're taking us, Father. But with that, Father, also, we would be unwise if we did not consider that we cannot build this on our own. We cannot let our past uh, success fool us into thinking we did this in our own power. Much less, Father, to think that we can take this where we wish it would go apart from you. And so, Father, don't let us run out ahead of you. Don't let us set goals that are not yours. Don't let us think too well of ourselves so that we would not steal the glory that is only yours, ruin what you have begun, make a work of man out of what has been a work of the Spirit. Guard us against these things, Father. Keep us pure in our heart for what you desire, always ready to follow. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaking to his disciples. Last week we began with that remarkable opening that Jesus uses to start the sermon. We call it the Beatitudes or the Blessings. And as we studied that last week, we noticed Jesus make nine statements at the opening of this chapter. And collectively, those nine statements typify the kind of person who will inherit the kingdom. I called it a character sketch of the one who is being saved by God, both the one who comes out of Israel and those who are from the Gentiles. Jesus' character sketch of the kingdom-bound person was very different than the character you would have found in the religious leaders of Jesus' day. We remarked last week that it's about 180 degrees different from the average Pharisee's way of life. The Pharisees, for example, were not poor in spirit, as Jesus called on his followers to be. They were proud of their self-righteousness. They weren't mourning over their sin. They celebrated their piety. They weren't gentle. They weren't merciful. They weren't peacemakers. They were arrogant power brokers who schemed and conspired to maintain their hold on authority and privilege within the culture. Now, we haven't gotten to know them all that well in just four chapters or so, but we'll see this as we go further in the Gospels. They will show themselves for who they truly are. And these men, in their role as the religious leaders over Israel, they had the, the right, the power to decide for the average Jew what that person must believe and how they were to live. Then they set themselves, the Pharisees set themselves apart from those people and the burdens that they lay on them, claiming to be perfect examples of what pleases God, though they were not willing to even do the very things that they asked of others. Jesus says this later in the Gospels. They burdened the people with man-made rules that distracted those people from knowing the love and the mercy of God as found in his word. So to the ear of a first century Jew who was standing next to Jesus or watching Jesus preach as he gave this sermon, those Jews only knew the Pharisees' version of the kingdom, 
what they had heard from those men and seen in their lives. And from that point of view, what Jesus was saying now would have been stunning. It would have been revolutionary to hear him declare the Beatitudes. He wasn't just contradicting the Pharisees' teaching. He was invalidating their authority. He was declaring that the Pharisees' approach to God and to establishing godliness and so on was as corrupt as Satan himself. He declared their teaching to be false, but more than that, he declared these men to be false, to be false teachers who lacked the very thing that they were trying to offer to everybody else. Now, what his teaching did was expose these men. In a way that no one else is willing to do. If you've ever noticed in the Gospels how the crowd always seemed to delight in the way that Jesus put these men down, it's because everybody kind of saw them for who they really were, but no one wanted to say it because they were powerful. They controlled the society. And when Jesus exposed them to be the counterfeits that they were and that they did literally the opposite of what God desired, well, he sets up the conflict. As we studied the the, uh, Beatitudes last week, We never looked outside of Matthew, but if you were to go to Luke's gospel in chapter 6 and look at where Jesus teaches these same things in Luke 6, 24, he adds a couple of comments specifically directed to Pharisees that were not in Matthew's gospel. Let me just read them to you. Luke 6, 24. At the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. And woe to you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. So it's clear that he was thinking here about Israel's religious leaders as he spoke these words of condemnation. He doesn't name them, but I guarantee you nobody in the crowd was confused about who he was talking about. Pharisees were rich. They were rich men generally. They lived in comfort, they lived in splendor, they enjoyed the life that they created for themselves, and they did it all at the expense of the people. Does that sound familiar? Do we not have people doing the very same thing today? These Pharisees sought for the approval of people, for public approval, and they did it typically by pandering to the people's interests. And Jesus said, these traits that you see in these men and in the men we know today, they have always been characteristic of false prophets, not the true men of God. Look, I'm not saying that someone who's truly of God can't have money, but I'm telling you that when men in ministry make money their goal, watch out. It's always been a sign. So it's no surprise that the tension that existed between Jesus and the Pharisees becomes a major storyline in the Gospels. I mean, here you go at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he's rocking the boat. He came to reveal spiritual truth that was so different, so opposite of what the Pharisees taught, that conflict with these guys was inevitable. There was no way to avoid it. So, early in the ministry, he fires the first shot with the Beatitudes. Right at these guys. He says, the kingdom cannot be obtained by following the Pharisees' examples or their teaching. Instead, Jesus said, God calls to himself a very different kind of soul, one who is reborn in God's image, one that yearns for the kingdom to come, does not desire to have the world now, but realizes that what we really want is coming in the future. So he threw down the gauntlet, and now in the text in chapter 5 of Matthew, he now moves on to explaining how God's true disciples are going to live during this time while we're on earth awaiting the kingdom. And he summarizes it with a couple of metaphors. He says in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. 
You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Very familiar passage, I'm assuming. He turns to those he's addressed earlier concerning the kingdom. To the kingdom-bound disciple, he says, you have to live according to these two metaphors. And he uses two metaphors that we've all heard, salt and light. We've all heard them before. They're so well-known. They're almost axiomatic now. We use them in other kinds of contexts too. You've probably heard teaching on these things. And I'm going to make some assumptions about what you've probably heard concerning these metaphors because in my experience, what I have heard typically is not, it's not wrong, but because it's taken out of the context, it misses some of the nuance and therefore some of the meaning. For example, you've probably heard how salt enhances the, the taste of food. It makes the taste stand out more, right? And therefore, the analogy is that a Christian should live in such a way that we stand out from the world. You may have heard some version of that. And likewise, as light illuminates and exposes things that are hidden in the darkness, so we too are called to bring truth to the world, right, or, you know, so on and so forth. Again, those are largely accurate. I'm not mocking them. But what I'm saying is they don't tell the whole story. There's a deeper story behind the analogy. To get a better understanding of how salt and light are being used here, you need some additional details. And they open up the story a little bit. And let's start with salt. You know, today you and I use salt principally to put on food as a dietary use. But that was not the most common use of salt in Jesus' day. In an age before refrigeration... Salt was principally used as a preservative. It was essential to keep food from spoiling. So if you were a Jew in Jesus' day, on that mount with Jesus, hearing him use the term salt and saying you should be like salt, honestly, the first thought that comes to your mind is not how to make something tastier. The first thought that would have come to your mind is how to preserve, how to be a preservative, how to keep something from spoiling. And Jesus says those who are blessed... He's feeding off of what he just taught in the Beatitudes. Those who are blessed, that is to say, those who are kingdom-bound by faith. We serve a spiritual purpose for God as we await the kingdom. We live on earth, and as we do, we live like salt. That is, we are a preservative. Now, for those in Israel, the Jews that he was addressing, they would have been the believing remnant of Israel. And the Old Testament declares repeatedly that God always preserves a small number of believers within Israel by His grace. That group the Bible calls the remnant. And that remnant is the means by which God preserves His promises that He made to Israel. And so in that sense, the believers within Israel, the Jews, were salt to the rest of Israel. They were preserving God's people from complete destruction. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 1.9, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, the remnant, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. So in a sense, those believers within Israel gave opportunity for God to preserve the whole, lest he destroy those who were his. They're preserving the people of God in that respect. Now what about for Gentiles, though? Well, for the Gentile believer, which is principally those in this room with me, you and I have a mission as a preservative, so to speak, as well, to live as salt. Because as the temple of God, we are the means by which God is tabernacling among men on earth today. And so what God has done in the church is He has sprinkled a few Gentile believers among all the nations of the world, few meaning relative to the total number of people on earth, there's a minority who are Christian. He has sprinkled us out there, preserving the world against self-destruction and runaway evil. 
And in that sense, we are salt, bringing a godly perspective into an utterly sinful world. So when you and I go back to the Beatitudes and we exhibit the character of God that is reflected there, to the extent we do that and live out that character, we are providing a preserving quality in the culture. So that as the Spirit works in us and we demonstrate some degree of mercy or humility or purity or peacemaking or whatever, standing for righteousness, we militate against runaway sin in the culture. You know, we're not going to put an end to sin. I'm not saying that. And in fact, the Bible says sin's going to get worse. So we're not even stopping the trend. But what we're doing as salt is preserving the world to a degree, slowing that decay. And more importantly, on an individual level, we're giving opportunity for the Lord to rescue some people from out of it through our witness. That's another preserving aspect of our existence on earth, our witness. And the church is the ultimate preservative in that respect. Preserving men and women from the fires of hell, not that we do it in our own power, but that God is using us in that respect. So in that way more than any other, kingdom-bound people who live according to what Christ called for us to do in those character traits are helping salt the world for Christ, if you want to use his analogy. If you don't think I'm on the right track, look where he goes in the end of verse 13. At the end of verse 13, Jesus challenges his disciples to consider whether or not we're truly living up to that expectation. He asks, is salt any good when it's no longer salty? Now here again, he cannot be talking about dietary salt. And the reason we know that is because dietary salt never loses its saltiness. Sodium chloride, it's a stable compound. It does not decay. So if salt is in its pure form... It stays that way. There's no principle that says salt becomes unsalty over time. That doesn't happen. So knowing that, we have to consider what kind of salt in his day had the potential to come out unsalty or to lose its value. Well, there was only one kind of salt that meets that definition. Pure salt, as we understand it, the way we're used to seeing it today, was actually pretty hard to obtain in Jesus' day. You know, they don't have refineries. There was very difficult to find or to make salt in a pure form. And that was so precious, it was the only form used for dietary consumption. If you were going to salt food, you used pure salt, and that was hard to find. So, as a result, if you needed to preserve food by salting it, you didn't use the dietary form of salt. It was too precious for that purpose. Instead, you would use a different kind of salt. The salt they used for preserving food, they would mine from sediment in salt marshes, for example, or other deposits. And the salt from those deposits often included impurities of one kind or another lumped together with the salt. And that degraded the quality of the salt. That's what made it inappropriate for use on food. But the salt was still sufficient to provide a preserving quality if it was used in the proper way. So when Jesus says a salt becomes unsalty or loses its saltiness, that's the clue that tells us he's talking about a form of salt that's mixed with impurities. Why? Well, because if you take a lump of something that is salt mixed with impurities and you get it wet, well, sodium chloride dissolves in water. So the salt washes out, dissolves away, leaving behind only the impurities that were once mixed in with it. Under the circumstances where you're storing this preservative salt and it gets damp or it gets wet, it can become unsalty, so to speak. And in that sense, salt loses its saltiness. The salt itself hadn't changed, it just washed away. That's Jesus' concern in the metaphor, that his disciples would lose their saltiness in that sense. So he's not talking about table salt here. That is, he's not talking about the, the idea of salt making something distinctive. He's talking still 
about salt being used as a preservative. But what happens when the salt that's intended to preserve isn't doing the preservation anymore? That's his concern. Jesus is not saying, you know, be table salt, maintain your Christian distinction. I mean, that may be a valuable lesson too, but that's not, that's too narrow. At worst, if you think about that for a second, if you tell people that the salt analogy is strictly about Christians staying distinctive, you know where you end up with that, if you're not careful? Pharisaical thinking again. Because I've seen this, and this is first-hand experience, I have seen this interpretation used to defend Christians living in strange ways. You know who I'm talking about? Not, don't name any names. I mean, just so you know the kind of people I'm talking about. You know, the ones who isolate themselves in compounds, want to dress in intentionally odd ways just to make a point that they're Christian, or they act holier than thou, and they walk around calling it being salt. I've seen this. It's an unintentional, unintended outcome of a less than ideal interpretation. That's not what I think Jesus wanted of his disciples. He certainly didn't want us to segregate ourselves and wear our faith on our sleeves in such a way that no one can relate to us. I mean, to say it another way, if your efforts at being salt lead the world to think you're a religious weirdo, you're not doing it right. Because that's not going to attract anyone to the gospel. The goal is not merely to stand out from the world in the sense of table salt. Jesus is asking us to be a blessing to the world in the sense of preserving them from evil. When you let the Spirit who is in you live out His desires rather than live in your own, you end up being in a position to bless the world by demonstrating the the humility and the mercy and the gentleness and the purity and all the rest that the world needs. You'll be peacemakers when everyone else is at war. You will mourn over your mistakes in a world that celebrates its depravity. You'll pursue righteousness. And as you do, you become a preservative that God can use to counteract the world's descent into corruption. But now to Jesus' question, if you fail to live out those traits, if you cease being useful to God in that respect, well then, you're like the preservative salt that's mixed in with impurities. As long as the salt remains in the deposit, that lump has usefulness. It can preserve food. But as that salt disappears, what's left behind has no benefit. It's just something to be thrown out. It's worthless, he says. And I think the application is obvious, right? If you fail to live out your blessedness, if you fail, by blessedness I'm referring back to the Beatitudes, if you fail to exhibit those nine characteristics, then you forfeit the potential you had to be an influence in the world in this way. If you live them out, you can be a blessing to those who you combine with, if I want to draw the analogy out another step. You as salt, combining with the impure in the world through your relationships you have at work or school or neighbors or whomever. You know, they're rushing headlong over a cliff of despair and destruction. They don't even know it. But you're with them for a little while in this world. While it's tearing itself apart with violence and hatred and crudeness and depravity and drug addiction and all manner of evil, you're standing there as a little bit of salt, a little bit of preservative, giving them examples of humility and gentleness and mercy and peace. That's not saving them in and of itself, right? We're not saying that just because you're nice to people, people get saved. But what I am saying is this. You might keep their attention, or keep them alive long enough that they have an opportunity to know the gospel. Think about all the opportunities you have in the course of your day to bring blessing. If you think of it in these terms, if you think of the Beatitudes as your mission of representing blessedness to people, if you think of it that way, how many opportunities do you have in a day to be a blessing to those who you meet simply by living out the Beatitudes? As the church body collectively does that, 
we militate against the consequences of worldly sin. But on a personal level, think about what you can accomplish by being humble when no one else is, or being gentle when no one else is, or being pure when the world doesn't value that anymore. Not in a self-righteous, pious way, not in a condemning attitude, in a way that actually draws people to you when they realize the ridiculousness and the hopelessness that their impurity has produced in their life. When they realize how much of chasing the world has hurt them and they're looking for an alternative, guess who they're going to turn to? The salt, the thing that's different. That's being salt. But if we don't do that, what good are we? You know, if you combine with the impurities of the world, yet you do not act as salt, guess what you look like? You look as impure as the rest. That's all that would remain. The world's impurities and your own mixed together. Now what do we got? What good is that? He warns the believer that if you fail to live out these beatitudes, there's a consequence. I love the fact, frankly, that Jesus even acknowledges that a believer can fail to be salt. His concern implies it's possible. If it's possible, that means though you're kingdom bound by faith, you might not share in many or any of those nine qualities of beatitudes. That is, if you're determined to live in the flesh, it won't show. Every kingdom-bound person, by faith in Christ, possesses these qualities in their spirit. But not every believer exhibits them consistently in their life, in their body. Some don't exhibit them at all. We can't take Christ's concerns in that regard lightly. And I'll tell you from experience, these things don't materialize in you without effort, without focus. You're not doing it in your own effort, but you certainly have to put in effort. And by that I mean you have to discipline the flesh. That's where your effort goes. Because the flesh that you have, your body, it's a powerful force. We don't typically think of it as separate from ourselves, right? We tend to think of ourselves in a very integrated fashion. In fact, if I think of myself as having parts, then I get diagnosed, right? But biblically, you are not your body. Your body's a rental car. You get to turn it in when you're done. You go on without it. And how many of you take time to wash your rental car or change the oil? Not much, right? We just sort of run it to empty and then turn it in. And that's essentially how your body's going to work. It's not you. It's a container. But it's worse than that. It's a container that hates you. Spiritually speaking, it hates you. It hates God. It hates His law. It hates everything God wants. Your spirit and your body are at war. It hates you. Now, knowing that, you don't hate your body in return. Paul says you cherish your own flesh, but he means it simply in the sense of self-preservation. He doesn't mean it in the sense that you want to give it what it wants. Far from it. You want to deny it, its desires. But if you are not focused on disciplining your flesh and then yielding to the Spirit's desire in you so that he may produce these better things in your character, then, friends, do not expect to see much spiritual fruit in your life because it does not come on its own. It just won't. It's not a matter of time. It's a matter of time and effort. That's your choice. According to Christ, you have a choice of two paths in your life as a disciple. You can either be obedient to Jesus' call to live as salt, to be a preservative in the world, to bless the world by living out these beatitudes that Jesus said should mark the life of every believer, or we can be disobedient to that call, in which case we will be indistinguishable from the impurity in the world, therefore we're no better and we're going to be thrown out like pavement and trampled. His point is, he's going to put us to use one way or another. You can be a blessing to the world or you can be a warning to other believers. That tells you Christ is not ambivalent about the choice we make. He wants us to serve him diligently, which is why he adds the second metaphor in verse 14. These are building on themselves. They're not independent and they're not 
repetitive. There's a building idea here. In 14, Jesus says we are to be light in the world. Now, here again, the analogy is simple, but it's profound. And I think a lot of people, again, take it out of context, looking at it as another of the same. Just another way to say, be different, be, be an influence. That's not exactly what he means. If you ignore the context, you miss the full meaning. I want you to look at the progression again. I'm going to go back just a step and walk you through it. First, Jesus defined the behaviors that will mark a kingdom-bound person. We call them the Beatitudes. Then Jesus said that living according to those standards is like being salt in the world, which means we have to discipline our flesh so that Christ living in us can bring that blessing out of us and we can do what God has called us to do. Now, it's in that context that he moves a step further in his second analogy of light. And to understand what he's saying here, you have to appreciate something about light in his day. Lighting a lamp in Jesus' day was no casual endeavor. You have to remember, light was a burning thing, right? You had to have oil, you had to have oil in a lamp, you had to burn it. Oil was expensive. It didn't grow on trees. Actually, it did, but that's not the point. Oil was, was not cheap. And so, generally speaking, people didn't pay to light up their whole house at night. You know, they didn't come home at night and flip on every candle. That's expensive. They generally live by the light of the day, and then at night they would live either by the light of the moon, or if they needed a light for a short-term basis, they might light a lamp in their room while they ate, but they did not leave lights on. They, you know, darkness was the end of the day. And you kind of went to bed not long after dark. That's the first thing you need to understand. Secondly, even when you did light a lamp, It required some effort. You had to start a fire, typically. You had to have a fire nearby. You know, you didn't just flip a switch and forget about it. Or if you're under 30, ask Alexa to turn the light on. Or if you're you're over 65. All of that is to say this. Lighting a lamp, when he says no one lights a lamp, what he's saying is no one goes to the expense and no one goes to the effort to light a lamp and then put it under a basket. That's what makes the analogy powerful. His point is that when someone goes to the time and the effort and the expense to light a lamp, they had a purpose in mind and they expect payback. They expect something out of it. They expected the light to give them a return on that. And so as the Lord has placed a light in each of us, and we're speaking here now specifically about the Holy Spirit, which is the mark of every believer, He expects it to pay off. He expects it to pay off, so to speak. We're not supposed to hide that light. We're not supposed to blend in. We're not supposed to lose our saltiness. Okay, that part you've got, and I'm sure that's not news to you. But being salt in the world, living out our Beatitudes, that requires effort and it requires cost on your part. You've got to discipline the flesh. You have to work at yielding to the Spirit so that you can reflect Christ in the world. It's sort of like the effort required to light a lamp. That is to say, you're saved by God's work in your heart by His grace, not by your own works, okay. But making that light visible, as to say, making the light useful, that takes effort. In the sense of denying yourself, in the sense of controlling the fleshly desires that get in the way, and letting God's light in you dominate, so that your nature reflects Him. You see the two coming together there? I'm not saying you're doing the work of making the light, I'm saying you're doing the work of getting out of the way of the light, or getting out of the way so the light comes through. That's what he's saying. God didn't just flip on a switch in our heart and then instantly we think and we act like Jesus. Oh, I wish it were that way. One day it will be. In the meantime, there's a work to be done. We all have the potential, the Bible says, to think and act like Christ. But you have to make that effort to discipline the sin that 
that gets in the way. And Jesus says something here that I think is going to be revolutionary for you tonight. I'm, I'm trusting it will be for some. He says, that effort I just described, that is defined in the Bible by two words. You know what the two words in the Bible uses to describe that effort? Good works. Oh, yeah, you thought it was something else, right? Notice in verse 16, Jesus says, Letting our light shine is doing good works before men. The light in us, the Spirit living in us, it's invisible unless it comes out in some tangible way. And the only way that light can be seen is through the demonstration of spiritual fruit or good works. And that's the key conclusion here. That the good works that Jesus expects of believers is living out the Beatitudes. Living out the kingdom traits that he defined for us earlier in this chapter. It's not just doing nice things for people. And I think that's the part of this that, that will rock your world a little bit. Good works is not doing good things for other people. It's being godly. That's a tough standard. You know, you may have been challenged at some point in the past when someone told you that as a believer, you're supposed to do good works. And you thought about that and you said, well, serving in soup kitchens or building houses for the homeless or offering up prayers for the sick or volunteering in the children's area. Oh, volunteering in the children's area. Ooh, that's not an easy one. Or helping, you know, the typical stereotype, helping little old ladies across the street, you know, as we think about these things. Oh, that's pretty demanding. I, I, that's going to be a tough one, Pastor, but I'm, I'll set my mind on those things. I'll do my good works. But if that's what you thought the Bible meant when it said good works, well, you're actually thinking a little bit like a Pharisee. Hear what I'm saying. When you think that when the Bible says we are to do good works so that we can shine our light before men and give our Father in heaven glory and so on, if you thought that boils down to a checklist of a few things you do once a week on a volunteer basis, you're being a Pharisee. You're rigging the game. You're setting the bar nice and low so you can feel good about yourself. But you're not having to make the actual sacrifices that have to be made if you're actually going to do something to glorify God. Because you know what? You can be proud, self-righteous, revengeful, egotistical and greedy, and pour soup out at the soup kitchen. Right? Later in the Gospel, Jesus says this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 13. He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. I'm not saying we do that, but think about how close we get. We give long prayers because that's easy, and we cheat on our taxes. Or we give long prayers, or we do, we do something that is token and meaningless, but it feels like a good work. Why? Because it's got some religious side to it. And then we go about being a sinful person in most of the other aspects of our life, which is basically salt not being salty. And then we assume God is really happy with us. Friends, you make an excellent Pharisee if you think that way. And we've all probably done it at some time, so I'm not saying there's only a few of us. I agree we all have a part in this. But the thinking is the problem. You're not going to get better unless you fix the thinking. And the thinking is wrong. Here's the point. If doing good works is merely about doing acts of kindness, then any hypocrite can do a good work. The Pharisees did them, but their hearts were as evil as ever, Jesus said. And Jesus said people like that are not destined for the kingdom. Now, what he's speaking about here is in general, in stereotype, right? That's not typical of who you'll see in the kingdom. Kingdom-bound people 
are seeking inward spiritual change. And that inward change, that salt, becomes light when it comes out in the good works that are worked from that inward change. The character traits that he lists in the Beatitudes are the good works you need to go do. Those nine qualities, they're the way you're supposed to shine forth that godly character that Christ is making inside you by His Spirit. And here's the thing, if you adopt those spiritual qualities, that is, if you make your goal seeking for them and you reflect them, that will inform your words and your actions over time. That's when you will go to a soup kitchen out of a love, out of a merciful desire to help people because you've already gained the merciful heart that leads to that act. Now you're doing the same thing you were doing before, but the hypocrisy is missing. Big difference. And God knows your heart, which is why these things matter. As you discipline your fleshly pride, for example, then your spirit-produced humility shines forth naturally. You discipline your flesh's self-righteousness, you'll become one who mourns over your sin and repents of it. You discipline your flesh's desire for conflict or revenge or lust, and what comes in its place is a reflection of Christ and His heart. Those are the good works He wants you to display. And He says it's like a city on a hill. It's like a lamp shining in a room. It's just going to draw people's attention to God and the grace that He's given you, the work He's done in your heart. You know what people will say? They'll say, so-and-so, tell you what, he is such a nice guy. She is such a great person. Look what they've done. Look how they treated me. Everyone else rejected me, and they were right there for me. Those are the moments when light is shining, when salt is standing out, when Christ is being glorified and the Father in heaven is receiving glory. That's what he's asking of his disciples. Not necessarily building houses. If you miss this point, we go out and we do good works, thinking we're helping everybody in the world. But if that were the case, you know, Christ wouldn't need the church. When you think about it, what would he have? He would have just stood up the Salvation Army or the United Way or the federal government. Well, at least two of those three. Right? He would have just made some civic organization that sets its mind at doing good works for people and we'd be done. That's not what Jesus wants. What he really wants is a work in your heart. Do you realize he can feed everybody in the world if he wants to? He doesn't need us to feed people in order to get people fed. He doesn't need us to help little old ladies across the street to make sure they get across the street. He's not saying we shouldn't do those things. What I'm saying is that's not the point. What he wants to do is change your heart. And that's a hard work, isn't it? The prospect of serving in soup kitchens starts to sound pretty easy compared to the idea of demonstrating mercy and gentleness on a consistent basis, doesn't it? How many Christians do you suppose have driven downtown to serve in a soup kitchen and then cursed out other drivers along the way or cut them off, <laughs> cut them off in traffic? Why? Because you're going to make me late to the soup kitchen, right? Have you ever done that on the way to church? Yeah, we're all guilty, right? That, in a sense, is being a Pharisee because... It's someone who looks the part in public, and yet in their heart, there's someone very different. His point is that being salt is a process fundamentally about inward change, one that requires forethought and effort, and it comes at a cost, like lighting a lamp. So you glorify your Father by doing good works, which in this case means contending with those parts of your character that don't look like kingdom qualities. And that's a battle. It's a battle against yourself. And it's the opposite of the way a Pharisee thinks, remember? A Pharisee was self-satisfied. They were convinced they were going to be number one in line for the kingdom. So let's stand back for a second. I want you to review with me briefly what we've learned in verses 1 through 16. I'll just hit the highlights. Jesus starts with a character sketch of the kingdom-bound individual. 
in those nine qualities. This is, again, a person who's saved by faith and then sanctified by the Spirit. That person thinks and acts in ways that are very different from the world. They maintain eyes for eternity. That is, they keep a perspective that they know their reward is found in the kingdom. They're not looking for heaven on earth. They're, they're here to be a representative of heaven to the earth. They know they're only passing through the world. They know God has just put them here for a time. And in the time they are on earth, they are to be a blessing. And so they long to show God's heart before the world that does not know Him by acting as a preservative, so to speak, demonstrating their kingdom qualities to a world, helping hold back the destructive power of sin, both in themselves and in the world. And so they do good works in that regard to bring attention to the power that Christ is living in them and ready to live in those who see Him as well, those who might be interested in that way bringing glory to the Father. It's a witness. That's how Jesus has called His disciples to be. Another way to say it is living billboards for the kingdom. Not just in our words of proclamation, but in our attitudes and in our character. And you cannot mimic these things in the strength of your flesh and think that somehow you're getting around it all. You cannot fake mercy. I dare you to try. Try faking mercy. Try faking gentleness. I don't even know how you would do it. You're either gentle or you're not. You're either merciful to someone or you're not. But a Christian can hide these things. You came here tonight, I assume, to this church because you knew you would hear the word of God preached. There you go. That's what he's asking of you. Here's my question to you. Are you the kind of Christian who just wants to hear these things? Or do you actually want to do them? God forbid this church ever becomes the kind of church where everyone just loves to hear these things and goes away unchanged. What good is that? James says we don't want to do that. So I'm assuming since you did come here to hear something that you knew was from the Lord based in His Word, then may I say to you, you are obligated by what you have heard to set your mind on obeying what it asks. Take an inventory of yourself in these nine areas. Give some thought. Go back and read them. Where do you fall short right now? Where in your life do you not exhibit these qualities? (laughs) If anybody in here is saying, nope, got them all. There's a Pharisee fan club meeting in the back later. You can join them. But in all seriousness, that's how this gets put to work. You know, it's not just enough to hear it and say, oh, Steve was great. I love what he said. Where are we going to eat, honey? That's not enough. There needs to be reflection. We don't do that in this room. That's fine. We'll have small groups in the near future. We have a plan. They'll come. When they do, we'll encourage you to join. And as you do, you might have opportunity in those forums to go back into them. That's what we want. That's good. But even that's not a substitute for personal reflection. I really encourage us as a body, in your prayer time, ask the Lord, where am I falling short? Give me an honest assessment of myself, Father. Don't let me think myself better than I am. I don't want to be a Pharisee. And where I am falling short, Lord, give me help so that I can exhibit what you're asking of your disciples. Let me be the salt you've asked me to be. I assure you that if your heart is directed in that work in a sincere way, he's not going to ignore your prayer. That's what he wants. That is His will. And He'll show you, and then the work begins. The next time you have that unkind word to someone, the next time you have short patience with someone, the next time that you you know, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, the Lord will, in that moment, bring to your mind these things. Hey, Steve, I thought we had a plan. thought we were working on this. 
And that's okay. That's where the, the, the repetition builds. That's where you get to think, okay, you're right. I need to do that better. And the next time, maybe you'll do a little differently. That's how sanctification looks. It's not magic. But it is magical. Because when it starts to take hold, it, it's an amazing thing in someone's life when Christ starts to shine through. It really is. You've all experienced it, I'm sure, to some degree. I know I have. But it does not happen unless you set your mind to it. Not because he can't do it, but because it's that working with him that he has asked of us so that we might submit to his life, live through us. All right, That's what that means. So let's take that as a to-do this week. Let's go back and look at the Beatitudes privately. Let's give some thought to who we ought to be and who we aren't. And then let's let the Lord begin to move our hearts in that direction. I assure you, a church that is living according to the Beatitudes is one powerful preservative. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for preserving us first by your son's death on the cross as he died paying a price we could not pay for sins he did not do. He made opportunity for us to be in the very kingdom that we're talking about. And we long for that day to see it, to be with him, to be in his glory and his image, Father, as he's promised we will be. And we long for that. We thank you for that blessing. And then we look at his words and we recognize that there's a work yet to be done even now that we are called to be like him as, as much as we can in agreeing with those qualities that define the kingdom-bound citizen, Father, in seeking for them in our everyday life. Forgive us, Father, for the days and the years in which we have failed to live according to them, in which we have not set them as our goal. Forgive us for the injuries we have caused others by what we have said and done. Bring those things to our minds so that we may seek their forgiveness personally as opportunities allow. But most of all, Father, help us to be who we should be in the future. As Paul said, not looking behind but pressing onward, Father, we seek for the prize, the prize of of a good report in the day of our judgment. So, Lord, guide us in that way so that we would discipline our flesh, we would listen to the Spirit, and we would act accordingly. Thank you for a church, Father, that wants to know these things, is willing to share them with others, but most of all, a church who wants to live according to them, Father. That's what we got. That's what we want. Send us away from here, Father, blessed, encouraged, and soberly seeking to please you. And then bring us back in a, a little over a week, Father, on our new night so that we can continue in the next phase of what you have for Verse by Verse Fellowship. It's a blessing and we thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.